the worst the worst is that oh we're recording now oh man oh, you better <laughs> you better tighten up son well chad will he'll he'll uh spark that it, on you you know what esther is that the reason why so many people get mad at me because i say the wrong thing <laughs> well the worst in politics if you say the wrong thing someone could take your words turn it into an attack ad and it could cost you six million dollars three words literally that's all it takes three words in a row that could be used against you and then you have to defend yourself against that attack it could cost millions and millions of dollars so sometimes <sighs> it's there's a lot of pressure good gosh man i just wouldn't do no oh. i just <laughs> hold on Esther. Like pull that mic up a little closer to your face <laughs> yes sir. there okay, we go okay. all right um well you know i guess um you, you know i'm gonna go ahead and tell you the these political uh arenas i've only spoke at in one political thing and right. that was that turning point thing and those are the most vicious people on the next day somebody had written an entire <laughs> article about me bashing me and i'm like what the heck man like i forget the dude's name he's some yeah. big guy on, on uh uh Twitter. I don't even know what Twitter is. I, I know what it is, but I've never been on it before. And people are sending me, oh, look at this thing this guy said about you. And, I, and I'm just sitting here like, we need to have this dude on the podcast, man. <laughs> yep. So they are vicious. I get that. It is a, a pretty cutthroat game. I never, it. I never knew that until we did that thing. Blake talked me into mm -hmm. going and doing that dang turning point speech. Did he also talk talk you into wearing those shorts? <sighs> no, actually, I woke up that morning. Were you responsible for that, Blake? Yeah, I told him it was all right. He, he gave me approval. Because here's the thing. Usually when we go, speaking is something that's part of our company here at 307 Project. And um, when we go speak, we're usually paid to speak for corporate events or teams or whatever it is. Well, this thing, we did it for free. And so... I was like, you know what? I don't get the opportunity to do this for free very often. I'm going to go full send on these jokers, man. <laughs> and so I got up that morning and I said, look, uh, Justin and Blake, I'm wearing this outfit. Y'all cool with that? And they were like, yeah, wear whatever you want. So it worked out perfect. <laughs> it worked out perfect. Um, oh, by the way, everyone, welcome back to the 307 podcast. We have one of my good friends, Miss Esther Joy King on the podcast today. Let me tell you what, you're in for a treat. Esther is no joke. We're going to get to learn more about her here in just a second. This podcast is brought to you by our Nuff Said Running video training series that we just put out. And camp. And the camp. We'll have Chili talk about the camp on Wednesday. Um, but yeah, dude, a lot of people have bought this training. And a lot of people are getting a lot out of it. I knew the value was there. When we created this thing, as soon as we done, I was like, okay, this is a masterpiece for people that want to get better at running. And thank you guys that have already purchased the course for making the investment in yourself and making the investment in 307 Project. Because things like that, the products is what allows us to do the podcast. Also, our Patreon members. People that support the podcast on Patreon. Mm -hmm. That means a lot to us. I'm one of those people. I know you are. 
Oh, last night was real good. Yeah. Did you, you, were you, were you on last night or did you just re? I watched it afterwards. Okay. I was on a flight during the actual. Wasn't that a powerful? It was powerful. It was. Gosh, man. How brought the message on resurrected for our Patreon members last night. And, uh, he just, I mean, he challenged me big time. Yeah. I'm just so proud of him and, and team Virtus and. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Esther. Did you guys talk today? I know you said last night that you were going to think of a way to be involved and in, more involved in your community. Did you guys talk about that today? Yeah, I actually have an idea. I know where there is a a homeless camp at back in behind the gym, mm-hmm. and I want to go engage. I want to go engage that that area back. Do you know where it's at, Blake? Yeah. There's a trail Team up there. Team PT. I was thinking about doing it after Team yeah. PT. Yeah. Yeah, so we got to nail that down, but it's uh, that challenged me on a whole other level. So thank you, Esther, for supporting the podcast uh, on Patreon and everybody else that is there because, yeah, the podcast takes a lot of time, and we appreciate it. To me, it's not just about the podcast. It's about the community, and that's the value that I get in being part of the community. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. That group we have on Resurrected on uh, there on Patreon is just unbelievable. The conversation that's had and the spiritual challenge. Yeah, I agree. And um, and yeah, that's what the podcast is brought to you by today. Thank you, guys. Esther, great to oh, be with you. Thanks man. for having me. Well, I want to say too on that on that running series, there is a a section where we talk about downhill running. <laughs> Uh, if if you wanted just that section, I could get that to you, <laughs> dude. You, somebody, somebody on uh, we Esther was part of the basic course team seventeen winter class. This is the basic course plus. Yeah, if you get yeah. the winter time basic course, you get the basic. The basic course is already difficult, and if you get the winter course, it's dang near twice as hard. Well, yeah. When you yeah, when you add the weather. Uh, and then the extra mileage and, and the terrain. I mean, that downhill coming into that final gap, is that not a brutal? My feet were swollen for a week after that downhill. <laughs> that, I mean, I fell like, twice. I'm about to take yeah. my boots off and show you. They're back to normal now. but <laughs> I fell twice on that downhill. Man. I went the whole weekend without falling and fell twice on that single well, downhill. I don't know about going the whole weekend oh i did fall in the river once but y'all didn't see that (laughs) nobody saw that um but yeah somebody asked me they were like well why did y'all why were y'all so late getting off the course and i was like well we had one that was challenged with the uphill and then we had one that was challenged with the downhill (laughs) and at the basic course you're either going uphill or downhill downhill. (laughs) uh I just, uh, you know, you're such a special person, Esther. Going back to how we met, I was running a 100-mile race with Jesse Itzler called the Hennepin 100 up in Illinois, which is where you're from. Yep. And we were deep into this race, and, you know, we were getting, we were feeling it, man. And Esther comes out to support us out of nowhere. I had never met Esther before. And we come into an aid station and as we get close, we can hear Esther yelling constant forward motion. And she's got a poster board and she's got just bringing this energy, man. And I was like, wow, that's a special person. Little did I know that you would be a part of my life. Yeah. Like, 
for now almost two years. So from here's a funny story from that race. The next time we saw each other was at the BYLR camp. If you guys remember that. Mm -hmm. Well, I saw Jesse at that camp too. And this is how he remembers me. So yes, I was loud. I was yelling, but I got one thing uh, a little bit uh, off the, the phrase like Jesse's like trademarked phrase is constant forward motion, but I was yelling continual forward motion. Same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Jesse, he, he sees me at that camp and he's like, Oh, it's you, your voice is on all my videos and you're saying the wrong phrase. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember that. I do. I do remember that. He's like, your voice is just the audio. It's on every single video we have from the Hennepin 100 and it's the wrong phrase. Same concept. No big deal. Um, and by the way, shout out to Jesse Itzler for just finishing the Ultraman challenge out in Arizona. You know, it's it's always in, it, it it's I don't know if I want to say inspiring or um like Jesse Jesse don't have to do nothing. He doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. He can do whatever he can do whatever he wants and he doesn't have to tell anybody about it. He does what he does because he loves helping people. And he loves squeezing every last ounce out of himself. And it just seems confusing to me. I've been thinking about this today. Many of the people who are putting out the best content and challenging themselves on the highest levels in life are the people that don't even have to do anything. My buddy Andy Frisilla, he don't have to do nothing. And he's probably worth $100 million. He's set. Yeah. His car collection is worth $20 million. Like, but he's he does a podcast every day. Mm-hmm. I'm retired from the military. I don't have to do anything. I'm good financially. Because we love doing it. Jesse's a beautiful example of that. He really is. Shout out to Jesse for finishing that race. Watching the Instagram this whole week was just a blast. It was like, like I couldn't wait to see the next update. Is he, how's he doing? Like, has he made, he's got to go 171 miles. Like how far is he today? Like, how's he doing? You know, what's funny is, uh, Brooke and I were also keeping up with him on his race and Brooke was like, I got to check and see if Jesse finished because he was cutting it down to the wire on some of the stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I I knew he was going to finish. You got to understand how Jesse ticks. He cuts it down to the wire because he likes that. Mm. He does. Y'all think I'm crazy? He does that on purpose. He cuts it down to the wire because he likes that. He likes it being coming down to the last the, the few minutes. That's exactly right. He knows he could he could have trained harder and went faster. He knows he could have done that. He did it the way he did it on purpose. I knew he was going to finish the whole time. Jesse has grown so much as an athlete since we met three years ago. It's it's mm-hmm. insane how much he's grown. I'm just so proud of him, man. Um, Do hard things. That's it. And so, well, I got to, I just, again, you being a special person, that you being the special person that you are, Esther, I mean, I'll never forget seeing you stand over Joe and just be like, Eat, open the dying cliff bar and eat the cliff bar. Yeah. Like when when you get 
fired up. <laughs> you, I mean, you have got some fire behind uh-huh. you. Like, give me, give me a little bit of context of who you are in terms of Oof. your background and, and who do you owe that fire to? You know what I mean? Oh, uh, I have a very unique background, which we haven't actually like really dug into who I am. I like, we know each other and we have a, like a brother, sister bond, I would say, but really getting to know each other. Like that's, I think what we're going to do on this podcast. So it's an honor to have the conversation. So my parents were Christian missionaries when I was a kid. So they, I owe it to my parents is a big piece of the answer. My mom and dad just decided to live life different. And it went, it started with like both my mom and dad were middle-class affluent families. My dad was military. My mom was, uh, my parent, my grandparents on my mom's side were college professors and a nurse. So both like middle-class affluent families, but together my mom and dad just decided we have a purpose as a family and we're going to do, we're going to dedicate ourselves to ministry. And when you do that, it's not lucrative, you can imagine. So starting out, when I was born, my family was actually homeless uh, in an effort to like go to seminary and start a ministry. My just It's just not financially rewarding. So my parents said, though, we're going to do whatever it takes. So when I was born, my family lived in a broken down school bus that my dad had built bunk beds in. And actually a family, they visited a church like the Sunday before I was born and a family down the road noticed this pregnant woman and her husband and said, you know, we're going to invite that family out to, to lunch after. And this, this family just had compassion on our family. I'm, I'm one of five kids. So at this time I, I'm the fourth out of five. Mm. So they had my older two brothers and my sister and they found out my parents' situation and they said, well, we have a friend that has a rental apartment. Do you want to stay in their rental apartment while you're having a baby? So I was actually born in like the back bedroom of some friend of a friend's rental apartment in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But the way my parents directed our lives was full of purpose. We had a mission, we had a purpose. And they said, we're going to do whatever it takes to be in the ministry. And that's the way they lived. Until I was three, we moved to Mexico is where I grew up. So I grew up right on the border in Juarez, Mexico. And every day it was a day of ministry mixed with some homeschooling, mixed with missions teams coming down that we hosted. And it was just, it's an unusual, like out of the box way that I was raised. And I'm eternally grateful to my mom and dad for that because it, I started life from a different perspective, kind of, I would say I, I was raised in a, like my childhood was flipped. Like some of the things that kids normally learn, like adjusted social skills and peer groups and some of those things, I didn't, I didn't have that growing up, but I did have, like, I was speaking to a crowd of 10,000 people when I was eight years old. And I was directing adults on how to run a missions team when I was a kid. And I was doing all these adult-oriented skills that uh, just from the nature of how my parents decided to live our lives, I got exposed to and just kind of thrown into the deep end as a kid. 
And then later on as adult, I had to like, like I was awkward in college. <laughs> I had to learn some more of those social skills as I was mm-hmm. an adult and like being more of a, in like a more traditional setting as an adult. So I attribute it to the way I was raised mm-hmm. more than anything. Yeah, man, that, that would be an interesting, interesting place uh, and situation to be a child in. I mean, it hits me the same way with what Hal was talking about. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. How your parents lived. They were the perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They, they they didn't just say, like, preach values at us. They lived it. They showed us how to live uh-huh. it. Mm-hmm. So, Are you still close to them? Very. Our, our family is very close. Um, I'll talk about my parents a little bit, but um, one key life event, my mom just went to heaven last April. So that's a huge transition and obviously in my relationship with my, my mom and my mm-hmm. dad, but, um, yes, I'm very close with my dad, particularly after losing mom. Mm-hmm. Like, um, our family has gone through a lot of transition, but as a whole, we've, we're a very close family. That's wonderful. Yeah. Where, uh, are you guys, are, are they in Illinois or are you guys all spread out? No, we're all spread out. So, um, I'll tell a little bit more of my, my path and then talk about my family yeah. too. So I went to Oral Roberts University for undergrad in Oklahoma. And then following that, my first job out of undergrad with my parents just making that the fabric of who I am, like jump in, make a difference, do do what, what you can to, to make a difference. The first job I took out of undergrad and, okay, I'm going to back up even further. So <laughs> the first job I took, I t- was an aid worker in Kabul, Afghanistan. That's the first job I took out of undergrad. I went to work doing women's rights work in Afghanistan. So, but to back up and the reason I wanted to go to Afghanistan and kind of the connection more broadly, not only my were my parents missionaries, my grandparents were missionaries. Mm-hmm. So my mom's parents, <clears throat> they had been married just a short time and they heard of an opportunity to go to Kabul, Afghanistan as missionaries. This is early, mid-1940s is when this happened. So they'd literally been married for a week. And they heard that the Shah of Afghanistan, or the king, he had this vision for westernizing his country. So he put out like um, announcements in the United States to westerners to come work for his government. And obviously Christians who are oriented towards missions work heard those announcements and said, well, that sounds like a great missions opportunity. So Mm -hmm. all the people that answered those calls more or less were people that wanted to be in Afghanistan for, for Christian purposes. And so my, my grandmother and grandfather moved there in the late 1940s. And my mom was actually born and raised in Kabul, Afghanistan and lived there till she was eight years old. So she raised me and my brothers and sisters with a knowledge of the country and sharing stories of her her parents and her childhood there and being a missionary's daughter in Afghanistan. So I'd been raised my whole life knowing about the country and, and um, just the culture and how lovely the Afghan people are. So when I had the opportunity to go there right out of college, I jumped at it and said, yes, like I want to do that job. So I went and did women's rights work um, I worked for a United Nations Development Project establishing a program to help women. This was in 2008. So well after we'd been there, things were very established Mm -hmm. by this time. Uh, A lot of NGOs were working in the country. 
very fairly safe period to be there and worked to help women were starting to get jobs at that time. So I helped do a skills development program for women to learn how to be in the workplace. And it's life-changing for, for me as an American woman, even though I grew up in Mexico, like still I'm an American through and through. And to go to a country like Afghanistan, that's so contrasting to how blessed we are in the United States truly changed my life. Mm, I bet it did. To, to teach me like, some of the women, so I got to do the pilot program, set up the program, help get funding for the program, and then do the pilot training program with the first cohort of women. And just remembering some of the stories of those women, like um, one woman had been burned from head to toe because her father felt that she had dishonored the family and women in that culture were treated as property. And so her father just decided that was going to be her punishment. And like just to know how blessed I am and how privileged it's a woke word, but I'll use it in this situation, how privileged I am to be an American. Um, so life-changing experience. It inspired me to want to become a lawyer, just seeing the, the contrast of a country like Afghanistan, where there's no rule of law compared to our country where we have this undergirding yeah. of our system. So I went to law school when I came back to the United States and practice law for a time. I went to Northwestern University School of Law. Uh, went to a law, it's a law school that's fairly liberal. So that was a pretty interesting experience for me as a conservative, a Republican, being in a liberal law school. And that's another, I talked earlier about my social skills development. That was another phase of my life where like I really learned to like interact with socially with my peers more so than just like, um, all these other skills that I developed through career opportunities and growing up in Mexico and those kind of things much more of the like, okay, this is how I like flirt or mm -hmm. <laughs> make friends or all the, those, those types of skills that are so basic, which you usually would learn in like elementary school. Uh, then from law school, I practiced law at a large law firm in Chicago for a time period, then took a job with the state government of Illinois. So we elected a Republican governor and, I joined the Department of Commerce for the state of Illinois. So I was the director of entrepreneurship, innovation, and technology for the state of Illinois. It was my job to grow and recruit businesses to come to our state to promote the small business entrepreneurial community in the state of Illinois. So that was a blast. I loved that job. I was around entrepreneurs so much that I caught the bug, became an entrepreneur myself. So I started a marketing company. And during that time frame, though, I'd already put my application in to join the United States Army. So while I was at the law firm, I had a colleague who just was, he was in the Army Reserve and he, that time on conference calls where you're waiting for everyone to join, he'd always be like, Esther, so when are you gonna join the Army? When I'm like, have you met me? Like, do I seem like I should be in the Army? Like, well, how, why are you trying to get me to join the Army? And how old were you at this point? Um, I would have been 20, seven 26 okay. 27 around that time and that's pretty late i mean that's yeah, late in the game yeah, to make that because that's a life altering decision it is it yeah. absolutely is so i just to get him to stop bugging me about it i was like fine i will come talk to recruiters like leave me alone and then like obviously you can kind of tell from my life path like adventure is something that's really important to me so when i talk to the recruiter they're like esther you can come be a lawyer in the army, 
while jumping out of airplanes, shooting weapons and traveling internationally, I was like, okay, cool. Sign me up. Like, <laughs> so I'd put my application in and as all government processes do, it took like two and a half years for my commission to come through. But so I was an entrepreneur working on a marketing company during that time. But finally my commission, I received my commission. So I went to Fort Benning here in Georgia uh, for my basic and then went to JAG school, which is our, our regimental home is at the University of Virginia. So I went to, it was, it's basically like military law school. So I went and did that and then was on active duty for a while and then stationed at the Rock Island Arsenal, which is in the quad cities where I live. And you don't live there very long in that community without realizing like the, the woman who's the, the representative for that area, people don't think she's doing a good job. (laughs) Like you, you pick up on that pretty quickly if you live in that, that area of the state and was working in the, for the military there was working for the army and, but met some community leaders and they were like, Esther, with your background, we think you'd be a great political candidate. If you will run, if you'll do this, we'll get people to support you. We're, we'll rally behind you. Will you do it? So you can imagine for a girl who was raised by parents that taught me jump in. If you can make a difference, it's your job mm-hmm. to do it. It's your responsibility. When they asked me that I was compelled to say, of course I'll run for Congress. Mm-hmm. So I ran in the 2020 election and we can obviously dig into all this and I'll tell the story. And then now I'm running again in the 2022 election. Good gosh. What a background, son. That's, you ain't wasted no time. time. No, you ain't. Do you ever relax? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, good gosh, man. Unbelievable, Esther. I am so glad you told us that story. Thanks. I had no clue who I was dealing with here. <laughs> I just thought this, well, it's still just Esther. But, uh, but man, some amazing accomplishments and a ton of hard work and a life of service, too, mm-hmm. at that. I mean. Thanks. Wow. That is, yeah, that just floored me. I didn't, uh, I didn't know the whole story. We, we have a lawyer friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We don't have many of those. No. You didn't know that? You didn't know she was a... No. Yeah. We we had some conversation on the basic course, so... Could could I run for Congress even though I'm not a lawyer? Oh, a thousand percent. Okay. People love Navy SEALs. Okay. Would he have to shave his beard? (laughs) Nope. It's your brand. Huh. Especially nowadays, like, it's all about the... The personality, the character—you could totally do it. Yeah, I have to. I have to believe if Chad got popular enough, there's enough things he said out there that <laughs> that uh, people would take out of context, or maybe take in context <laughs> that, that would um, maybe well maybe disqualify him. Um, well, then Blake, it's your responsibility. I don't talk about it. It's true. Yeah. Um, wow, man, that was that was just you laid that story out so well. That really floored me. Yeah, thank you for all that you've done, Esther. Um, solid, solid life. And you're just getting started. Well, first of all, this Congress thing. Uh, I would like to you just I would like for you just to explain why is your why should people view their congressman or congresswoman as important? Why should they even care? Yeah. Uh well, believe it or not the system around us affects our lives, whether we know it or not, whether it's the tax being taken out of our paychecks or the speed limit on the roads around us or how we get food at the grocery store. I mean, 
the government system is regulating everything about our lives, whether we know it or not. And the local level, I personally believe the local level should be the most important level of government and it should be, it should get less important from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right now, I think we're pretty out of balance in that exactly. our so, federal government is in our president and our Congress is probably more important than it should be in our lives right now. Um, but people should care about politics, I believe, because their voice matters. Everyone needs to believe that they matter in the political process. It matters how you interact with the government. It matters technically the way it's built it in our country, the government should be serving us. And if we're not telling them, if we're not speaking up and telling them, I want the government to work this way for my life, then we deserve what we get. If we're not taking our responsibility in the process and we each have a heavy responsibility to let our voices be heard, to be involved in our community, to influence those around us, to be educated on the issues and how government works. If we're not taking our responsibility, then we deserve the government dysfunctioning because we we let it happen to us rather than mm-hmm. being part of the process and taking ownership of our influence in the process. Yep. No, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Um, yeah, and and... That, like you said, the way the government interacts with the people and the way the people are supposed to dictate the government, if you've just got one, one maybe even smallish group that's making all the noise, then they're, then in turn, they, it's out of balance. they have that. Yeah. And it's just, man, I look around me and I'm like, all these people that are making all this noise was, well, for one, they have the time to make all this freaking racket because none of them work. They're all living off a of dang some some assistance. They're all living off of some program. Like the working people out here, I hear the excuse all the time. We're too busy trying to make a dang living to 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 be concerned and to go out here and protest or go out here and and, and use our voice for whatever. We're too busy trying to make a dang living. But we see that. We see where that's got us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see where that's got us. We can't use that excuse anymore. So, yeah. Blake, you need to start understanding a little bit about this <laughs> politics stuff, man. Hey, I, 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 I told Esther out there I probably should know more. I should de- definitely should know more than I. I, d- I do want to burn you for a minute, Chad. Uh, you, were, you had a phase where you were pretty hot on politics and talking about it on social media and in the podcast and everything. I know you've kind of moved off that. A well, li- a bit. I'm paying attention. Okay. I'm paying attention, but it was it was maddening me. Right. It was like, whew, like, oh, it was. I was about to blow a fuse. I had to back up for just a minute. So, w- direct quote for Chad Ray, one of the podcasts. You said, you know, we we need to abolish the federal government and get back to the Constitution. Oh, that was when he listened to Ted Nugent. <laughs> okay, so. I just, I laughed and laughed. I was like, has he read the Constitution? Because the Constitution establishes the federal government. <laughs> oh, man. That, man, did I say that? I'm going to have to go back and look. Uh, I, now, I do, I do want to abolish the, the bureaucracies that serve as the 
the arm of the federal government. I want to abolish the FBI, the ATF. How about the DOD and the Navy and the Navy? How do you feel about them? The Navy SEAL program? That was the other funny thing I had about hearing you say that. I was like, because your brand is Navy SEAL and training people and what you've been trained in. I was like, does he realize who paid for all that? Mm. Yeah, I've got a lot. I mean, I've got a long ways to go, Esther. I'm just getting started. I'm just getting started. I want to. Di- I want to dive right into. Uh, By the way, go Army, beat Navy. Whatever. <laughs> army, the daggone Army, man. Um, I want to. Di- I want to dive right into this. The 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 2020 election cycle for you. I I know. I I want to. I want to understand how, like how much it took out of you. Like I I'm assuming you have to pretty much or not it's, even pretty much you have to dedicate your whole life to this thing and like what were some of the major struggles for you? What what was yeah. what what was it up to your expectations? Was it different from what you thought it was going to be? Like I want to hear yeah. I want to understand what that yeah. was like. So this was my first foray into anything political uh, for running for office at all. I'd never run for political office at all. So it was a brand new experience for me and kind of like my parents taught me and like just the orientation I have towards adventure and jumping in. I just said, yes. Like literally I went to coffee with a business, a a business leader in the quad cities, my community, and he suggested it. And I was like, okay. And then I just, like followed the breadcrumbs, so to say, and realized, okay, I could talk to this person. They know a little bit. Well, they introduced me to the next person and the next person and the next person, the next person. So kind of like square one beginning of the process. Um, I was at the Rock Island Arsenal had to be in the reserve. I had to switch to reserve status to be able to run for office. Uh, You're not allowed to do political activities as an active duty member of the military. So I switched into reserve status and then the first, the first step, I met someone who was like in political consulting. So kind of they knew how to help someone get into a race and start figuring out how to get stood up, basically. Is that a job for them? It is, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the business of politics is a huge business. Uh, and I can, I could get on a soapbox about that, but... Um, yes, there are people that make it their careers to help run political campaigns and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I met one and he knew what he was doing in Western Illinois, introduced me to some community leaders. I met a state representative who was really helpful to me and mentoring me, gave me a book called All Politics is Local and then met a election attorney. So he helped me figure out how to get on the ballot and that whole process. And really it's just like, what's the next thing I can do? And I started doing it, like pull the thread and pull the thread and pull the thread and figure out, okay, I need to do this. And then I need to do this. Okay. You need money. You need resources to run a political campaign. Who can I ask for money? So I just, the two things I started with were meeting as many community leaders as possible getting involved in some of the local party activities. So most people don't realize this, but there is, there is an entire political structure in almost every community across the United States. So there is a local Republican party almost without fail at the county level, at the city level. Mm. Uh, Not everybody has great leaders and they don't necessarily have great um, 
functioning, but some, obviously some states are way better and way more Republican and have like invested in those structures for years and years and years. And so there's a ton of people involved and everybody knows about it and they have great events and all that kind of stuff. And then other places are just much smaller and maybe a few people that have been involved for 30 years, like five people that have been doing this for 30 years are doing it together and they're Mm -hmm. the only ones doing it. But pretty much it's so if i'm saying this so that if someone wants to get involved like they could google what county are you in here floyd so you could google floyd county republican party and you'd find either a facebook group or a website or something and there would be probably it'd be like a monthly uh committee meeting and all the precinct committee people would get together and there would be a chairperson of floyd county who kind of directs the activities and you could go, you could become a precinct committee person. You can get involved in that way. So I just started going to like meetings of these county party meetings and meeting people. And so you're building a network. Yes. You're starting building your network. Yep. yep. And so from, from the beginning, so I started kind of exploring the opportunity and visiting things and like Believe it or not, one thing you need to know about politics, you walk in more parades than you will ever want to walk in in your entire life. So I started like going to parades and uh, going to county monthly meetings and going to fundraising dinners and all that kind of thing. And just, yes, building the network. And then when I actually officially filed paperwork, you can't fundraise, you can't start asking for money until you've officially declared your candidacy and said, officially with the Federal Elections Commission, because I'm running at the federal level. It's different at the state level and at the county level, but I'm running at the federal level. So I filed my paperwork to say, yes, I'm running for Congress, and then I could start asking for donations. Because then you have a place to put it. Exactly. Yep. And it was literally everybody I met, hey, would you be willing to give $25, whatever you can give? I remember there was a a gentleman who... uh, the very first like big check that I got, it was a gentleman gave me a $500 check and he like shook my hand and like put it in my hand in the handshake. He's like, I really like what I see in you. I really want you to know I believe in you. And like, that was a moment where I was like, wow, like someone just gave me $500. Like they believe in me enough to give me $500. Like maybe I could do this. And if there, if I were to boil it down to one bottom line, like how have I gotten to where I'm at now and how did I almost win in 2020 and then continue running for 2022? It's just persistence. Mm -hmm. Like the, the bottom line of all of it is do not quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you showed that persistence out on the basic course. (laughs) (laughs) On the downhill. No, the whole time through. (laughs) I mean, when somebody needed to step up, you stepped up. Um, so that is a part of you for sure. And how how did you how did you deal with public life? Does that stress cause it that part of life stresses me out. Yeah. Like, does it do you do you enjoy it? Does it stress you Ooh. out? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with the tax and yeah. the, all all the bull crap? Well, first of all, I'll say I'm like I'm small potatoes right now. So I'm just learning what that's like. Like I'm just starting to get into dealing with all this, the public life, the tax, all that. Um, but I'm, I'm in it enough to know kind of, okay, this is what I'm, this is what I'm signing up for, for however long I'm in politics. This is the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
So I'll start by saying I'm an extrovert and I love meeting new people. Like my absolute, the joy of this entire process is I get to meet incredible people in this process and it is so fulfilling and so rewarding. Well, that's a gift to be wired that way. Yeah, (laughs) it truly is. It truly is. And I, when I'm, especially when I'm discouraged or having a hard time, like I try to focus on that. Like my, my team knows, like if I'm having a hard day, send her out to knock on doors. Cause she just loves meeting <laughs> random strangers. Like wow. just go send, send Esther out for an hour of knocking on doors and meeting random strangers because that like that connection, especially at like someone's front door, like that's kind of vulnerable, right? You're almost in their home mm-hmm. and I can stand there at a door and ask, like, I'll introduce myself and ask like, what like what matters to you and that to me is such a rewarding interaction to let someone know like i consider this to be service not just to my country but also to my faith Mm -hmm. and my god and to be able to stand with someone and let them know like you matter and in this moment you are loved like that's a really rewarding experience in in the people interaction for me that said some of the hardship of it um what I do struggle with a lot is finding space for Esther. Yeah. Like a lot of times the way we treat people in the political world, the way we treat politicians, it's believe it or not, I become a target a lot. <laughs> what? Huh? Mm-hmm. Who would have thought? But, and it's not just on a large level. It's on an individual level. Like oftentimes when we talk to our political representatives, we want something out of that conversation. We want them to affirm our beliefs. We want them to tell us what we want to hear. Like we really want, oftentimes we want them to give us something in that moment. And so oftentimes people will come to me and like want me to affirm whatever it is they believe. And so if I believe the same as them, great, that's easy to do. (laughs) But if I disagree with them or I want to give them a little bit perspective, a little bit different perspective on the issue, it's really tough to, to have that genuine interaction where I'm not giving them what they want. And I'm creating space for who I am and what I believe and a little bit different than what they believe. Cause obviously I want something from them too. I want their vote. Yeah. So I want them to like me. I want them to believe I'm like, going to serve them well and be a good voice for them in Congress. And so it's really easy, especially in those like interactions with people that I'm just meeting to want to perform yeah, and want to just give them exactly what they want, whether it's true to who I am or not. Mm. And so the fight for authenticity is real in this realm. And I mean, you see it every day, like we're seeing it on social media, like there's kind of this trend right now where people are running for office, not necessarily for the the policy or the service aspect of it, but for the attention aspect of it. Oh, I agree a hundred thousand percent. And so for me, like my my mission and what I want to strive for is authenticity and truth and genuineness with voters and telling them what is real, not just what they want to hear. And that takes a lot of courage to have those interactions. And I don't always get it right. In fact, I screwed up a lot, Uh, but I never, I always come back again. Mm -hmm. I haven't quit. So it's working out so far. (laughs) 
That's a solid answer, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, that's, I, I love that. That's got to be tough because you see, like, you know what I know what you want from me, and you know what I want from you, and we could just have this exchange Transa- and, yeah, and go it's, on. It's and, easy to be transactional, and it's yeah, yeah just but be friends. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a worthy and hard challenge you've put on yourself there. <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell you right now, I cannot stand Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> She's from here. I I know. I cannot stand her. Well, I seen y'all eating lunch the other day. How'd that go? Justin Sheely's <laughs> wanting her to come on the podcast. Yeah. Well, I guess one thing you can say about it though, she don't she don't uh she stays true to herself, I guess. We'd have to have a security team, all the crap you've talked about her on. <laughs> do you here know before. do you know Marjorie Taylor Greene? I don't know her personally, no. Oh my gosh, man. All right. Okay. Great answer, by the way. Um all right, I have a question here. Look, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Um, I have lost all faith in our government. You're ready to abolish the federal government, I've I, heard. I mean, I have lost all faith, complete faith. I, well, they lost my they lost my faith in them. Like, and here's here's my Here's the thing. When I go on uh, Andy's podcast and he says, what do, you, what do you think the solution is? And my answer is, it needs to be completely torn apart. Everyone in the federal government right now needs to go on public trial for the crimes against humanity that have hap- has happened in the last two years because I believe that one of the burdens of leadership is accountability. In other words, when when decisions are made and the decisions cost someone their lives or their businesses or whatever it may be, you're accountable for that. You you ultimately made the decision in terms of these mandates and all this stuff. Well, I didn't vote on no freaking I didn't vote on no mandate. Like I think there needs to be a deck. The whole thing needs to be torn down. They need to have everyone that was serving in government go on a public trial, guilty or non-guilty. Some of them will be found guilty of murder, and there needs to be a public hanging. And then none of this won't happen again for another 300 years. Or tar and feather. (laughs) I'd rather see a public hanging. Um, but, But then when I say stuff like that, people are like, well, we don't need to tear it all down. We just need a remodel. Just put and, some new sheetrock up. And I, I mean, I get that because the way the founding fathers set up things to work, it works. It's the best. It's the best. The way it, it just don't seem like. It. Can it be fixed? Yes. Can it be fixed without burning it all to the ground and? St- Starting back from the or, or the 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 uh, blueprint, absolutely. Just because it's a hard fight doesn't mean it's not a fight worth fighting, Chad. Yes, we're up against a lot, and I'm going to put a disclaimer. I do not agree with anything Chad just said. I yes. know someone that would be a headline saying, "Esther Joy King <laughs> talks with man who believes <laughs> that, that we need to burn it all down." <laughs> this is Chad speaking. Yes. <laughs> so I'm putting in a disclaimer. I do not agree with public hangings or anything that Chad just expounded on. Uh, But I believe, 
like, yes, we're in a desperate state. And yes, the bloat in our federal government is huge. And yes, the overreach, the, the uh, infringement on our freedoms is, it's huge. And it's not okay. But I don't believe the solution is to tear it down. I believe our country is worth fighting for. I believe America is worth the work. It's going to take a lot of work. It's th- what this passion and energy that you have. It's like you asked me earlier, where does your fire come from? My fire is in my belly. All that energy and anger that you have is th- runs through my veins just as much. And I'm channeling that towards getting out of bed every day, making fundraising calls, meeting as many voters as possible each and every day to win an election, to be able to influence policy. My The story that I got told in children's church as a kid that has, it's a cliche, but it applies to this moment. And this is the, this is kind of my, my theory and my, my approach to this entire issue. The young boy after a storm who's out on a beach and he sees thousands of starfish that had been washed up during a storm. And he goes out there and starts saving the starfish. The old man watching him, he's like, son, you can't save all these thousands of starfish. But sir, I can save this one, and I can save this one, and I can save this one, and I can save this one. So my theory of how do you solve, it's a big problem. It can get overwhelming. But I, personally, I can save my sphere of starfish and and influence the world in a positive manner in the way that I can. You can. Blake can. And together, we can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And we haven't gotten to this point over short term. It's taken us over 50 years for our government to get to this this point. Yeah. It's not going to be a quick turnaround. It's not just going to be, let's tear the system down and then the system we build over top of it is going to be perfect. No, people are involved. Anytime you put people in the system, like they, they, they imperfect, they're imperfect. We as people are imperfect. Mm -hmm. And so anytime people are involved in the design of a system, that system is going to get off track. Yes. And it's taken us a long time to get here. And if we stand up and fight to get us back on track and we're each doing our part, we can save our country. You genuinely believe that? I genuinely believe that. With every fiber of my being, I believe that. I'm glad you believe that. I just feel like it is so deeply entrenched. I I feel like these people that are in these leadership positions within our government are just so deeply entrenched with corruption and evil and just... How do you get them out? How why, do you? Why Why do you think they got there in the first place? It, to me, it reminds me of the quote, um, for evil to prevail, all that is required is for good men to good do men nothing. Good men to do nothing. That's how we got here. Yeah. Good people did nothing. Good people, like, okay, we were talking a little that bit earlier. That is so true. We were talking a little bit earlier, like, I'm too busy working and I don't have time to get involved. That's how we've ended up yeah. in this. If you are a good person who believes in giving back to the community, like, of... I also think of the scripture, like to whom much is given, much is required. It's fine that you want to feed your family and take care of your kids and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? And it goes, this goes to what Hal was saying. We're also required to serve. And if we're not, 
if we're not making service a part of our lives, then we're wrong. And yes, it's a lot. But if we're not saving our starfish metaphorically, then we're not doing everything that God has called us to. Mm. We are we are called to give back and to serve the, the people around us. The, the other scripture that comes to mind is um, the greatest among us is the servant of all. The, in the, king, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. Like service is called, it's part of our mission as children of God. And if we're not giving back, then we're too comfortable. We're not doing it right. And we, it's easy to see how, especially with the blessings of America, how we've kind of been lulled into comfort and lulled into believing that it's, this system is always going to work this yeah. way. And there's been open doors and open opportunity for people that have ill ambitions in our country to take power. I think of um, the book Rules for Radicals, Saul Alinsky, and there's, if you look into the the movement with Obama and Hillary Clinton and all, there's there's uh, conversations around how they've they've planned this out. Like in that book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in that book, it's like rules of how radical leftist leftist progressives can take over the government. And he says it's got, it's a fifty year plan, but if we work this plan, I believe we can change the culture, change the direction of the government. And if you read that book and see how they have executed, you're like, oh, wow. Like I read this book and see, and then raise my head and look around to what's happening in the real world around me. And they did it. They took over our educational institutions. They took over our um, government institutions, our media institutions, our like insert institution here and they've intentionally put people in places of influence and they've worked at it for decades and decades and they have Hmm. influence so if like you don't get to work with the world you wish you get to work in the world that you're in like we're in reality right i may or may not have learned that on the basic course yeah (laughs) uh but okay we've got to admit you know what the people that we're working against they've done good now, they're smart. Right. Don't think they're dumb. They're smart. Yeah. And okay, if we want to take our country back, we're going to have to be disciplined. We're going to have to have a plan of action where we're committed over the long term. We've got to be delayed gratification and working hard, putting putting in the groundwork, building the skills, preparing ourselves for whatever mission we're called to. For me, it's running for Congress and executing on it and working as a team to get there i can't argue with that i can't argue with that i mean i i guess that's i guess that's um, a fault that uh, it is ultimately a fault of mine i i automatically want to scorch the earth and get immediate gratification right but when you put it that way and the onus of all this is on us quote unquote good people People that believe in the 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 foundational aspects of what America is and and what it was designed and created to be, mm-hmm. it, the onus is on. It's our freaking fault that it's like that it is turned into what it is turned into. Yeah, you're exactly right. Huh. Well, 
we've got a couple different tools in the room here. Chad's always the hammer. It's always that. That thing's a little bit off. Just tear it. Just freaking tear it down, man. It, it ain't nothing salvageable. Then we've got a good remodeler here with the scalpel, and so it's it's there. You know, it's just two different views on things. And mm-hmm. well, I mean, I have to give I have to give Esther's uh, view some. Some credibility. I mean, I I can see that. I think that's yeah. a that's a that's a that was a beautiful and well put, um, yeah, plan of. Well, no, I don't know if you call it a plan of action, but a, a way forward almost. You know, and, and I guess I've been looking at, at the nation as like um, I had a shed one time that had termite damage, and every time you'd peel back the sheathing off the wall, it had termite you could see the termites had eaten the the framing out of the wall well i could just nail new sheathing up on there and make it look okay but the termites were so deeply entrenched i knew that as soon as a stiff wind blew it was going to blow the whole dang thing over and so i just tore the building down and rebuilt Mm -hmm. it from the ground up so that's where my train of thoughts coming from but well the termites have just started their dirt tunnel (laughs) <laughs> up the cinder block just yet i think you know oh no the, no they bear that's they, the difference no. here yeah no the termites are in the wall um okay i love that do you have faith in the integrity of our elections because this is a problem that that i i'm, I'm asking these questions selfishly because mm-hmm. i was sitting in the room with my father-in-law the other day and he said are you registered to vote and i said <laughs> Are you kidding me? Why would I waste my time to vote in an election that, in my mind, I've lost all faith in it. Mm. I've lost all faith that that they're actually counting your vote. And that the votes are coming from actual actual people. I mean, do, where, where are you at on this, Esther? Yeah. So, Yes, the integrity of our elections is foundational to democracy. That is absolutely true. And uh, I just had a conversation earlier today about the the angst of the 2020 election, right? Like we, we felt it. Uh, but what I know for sure with every ounce of my being is, again, America is worth fighting for. And so... One thing I'm doing in my race for Congress is we're working on election integrity. We have teams of people who are working to work with the, the county clerk level and they're they're scrubbing voter rolls and doing whatever it takes to help bring election integrity in the counties in my district. So we earlier I said, if people are involved, processes are imperfect, right? Because people are imperfect. And so if you apply that to election integrity, people are involved. There's, it's manually run almost at every level of the system. And I, you could, if you really are interested in election integrity, anyone that's interested in election integrity, like go down to your local county clerk's office and ask them about the process. How do you run elections in our county? I just like be friendly about it. Don't attack them, but ask, be curious, like come with curiosity and county clerks, usually they're uh, city employees. They've been there for a long time. They, they're usually really invested and they care a lot. And they, they take pride in their work and the protection of our, of our elections. And, 
yes, there's absolutely space for for uh, election fraud to happen, and and but also our system is built. You have to prove it. Uh, you have to show that election fraud happened so you can prosecute it and prove it in court. And so around the 2020 election, like that didn't happen. No matter what happened on election night, we didn't prove it in time before the electoral college voted. And so the electoral college voted and then we moved forward because that's the way our system works. And like looking backwards isn't going to solve a thing. Yep. But looking forwards, what I'm working on for my election in 2022. So I'll even, I'll be a little more personal about this. So on election night, election night 20. So, okay. I talked a little bit about the beginning of my election process. Uh, so I was running against a woman who was in office for over 10 years. She kind of had this reputation. She's a Democrat elected in a Republican area of the state. So she'd built a reputation for herself where she was, um, she knew how to get elected and work across the aisle and work with Republicans and everybody, Republicans, independents, and Democrats liked her. That was kind of the persona she built for herself. When you, when you're on the ground and you talk to people, it, that, that wasn't a match with reality. So I saw really quickly the opportunity, oh, she's built this reputation, but here's what I, here's what's true on the ground. Here's mm -hmm. what I'm learning from voters that I talk to. So there's an opportunity here. So essentially when I jumped in, it was a David versus Goliath fight. And through hard work, a lot of grit, a lot of heart, we were a small team, but we came within inches of beating this woman. And she, not only was she an incumbent in office for a long time, she was also, she had a leadership position in Congress. She was, it's called the chairwoman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So in the House of Representatives, both parties have an organization that the mission of that organization is to get Republicans or get Democrats elected. So Sherry Bustos was chairwoman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And the mission of that organization is to get Democrats elected. So she was the third most powerful Democrat in Congress. So when I was telling people, I'm running for Congress, I can win, people were like, you're taking on the third most powerful Democrat? Esther, we like you, but that's, that's cute and all, but mm -hmm. we don't think you can win. So on election night, I was leading, leading the race with 97% of the vote counted at about 1.30 in the morning. And so you can imagine the emotional experience of it flipping and then ultimately I lost. Yeah. Uh, but I came within inches of victory while being outspent by $5 million. So the pathway leading up the last final months of the election were just, it was all just heart, like me and my team just poured everything we were into doing as much work as possible. Uh, there's, it's called a field program is the political term, but your field program is talking to voters. So it's knocking on doors, making phone calls. We knocked on over a hundred thousand doors. And because of the coronavirus happening during that time, the pandemic, politically, the Democrats, their base were not comfortable with in-person interaction. So they were not knocking on doors at all. Yep. So we had a huge advantage. We talked to 100,000 people while they talked to zero people. Yep. And... That was back when Biden was hiding in his basement. <laughs> right. Yeah. In the 2020 timeframe. So um, we just like put our whole heart on the, on the field and worked as hard as possible. And come mid-October, so leading up to the election, we did a poll and sadly also 
at the same time, the Democrats did a poll and found out that I was, I had a shot at winning. I was likely to win. And then at that time, uh, the, my opponent, she turned around and got the Democrat party to put in a million and a half dollars in attack ads leading up to the election. So the last two weeks they did an attack ad on me, uh, spending and putting a million and a half dollars behind it. And we just, we didn't have the resources to respond to that. Um, and like we were within, we were within 4% while being outspent ultimately from across the entire election, we were outspent by $5 million. So what the crap, man, yeah, I came, well, I came within inches of winning while being outspent by $5 million. So everyone saw like everyone at the national level saw what like, wow, Esther almost won. And now like the narrative is, um, like we, we saw what you accomplished without tons of support and momentum. Now we want to help you. We're all in to help make sure you win in 2022. So, uh, last over a year ago or almost a year ago now, uh, my former opponent, Miss Busto, she retired. So she's not even running again in the 2022 election. So it's an open seat election now. Dang, you're not going to have a chance to beat her this time. I know. It's, it's Gosh, the, the like, thrill of victory. Was, it's, it's okay, though. Uh, so I'm, I'm technically going to have a Republican primary, but I will win the Republican primary. And then on the Democrat side, right now there's nine Democrats running against each other. So they're going to sling mud for until June and then um, one of them will come out and be my opponent on the Democrat side. But right now, so we have so much momentum and excitement and support around my race that at this moment, I am the number one female candidate in the entire country right now. So to go from like being the underdog to being one of the leaders in the momentum for this 2022 election mm-hmm. has been, it's really just gratifying to be to, to see all the hard work pay off more yeah. than anything. I want to ask you, how how did you, how was it for you mentally and emotionally when you lost in 2020? Yeah. Like, how'd you bounce back from that? Yeah. So a parallel story that has to be told to answer that question is my spiritual journey through all this. And the that moment, like, so... Um, rewinding to before I started running for Congress. So like I'm the daughter of Christian missionaries. You can imagine that faith has been part of my life since I was born. Like basically if you're a king, you're a Christian. Like that's just the nature of our, our, our family aura. Right. Yeah. Um, so faith has always been a part of my life. It's always been an important part of my life. And then I've gone up and down and, particularly after law school and that time period of being in a highly secular environment, I came out of that time period questioning my faith Mm -hmm. to a great extent and was starting to come back around. And it basically decided like, you know, whether, whether I can reason through this or not, I'm going to commit to my faith. Like it's going to be, it's going to be a piece of my, my existence. It's who it's part of who I am. I will commit to my faith and was starting to get back on track as a, as in like relationship and deepening my relationship with the Lord. Then jump into running for Congress. I love that though, because even though you were struggling in your mind with your own belief, you still took a step toward obedience. Right. And that create, that creates a beautiful environment to strengthen your faith later on. So I love that you pointed that out. Yeah. So 
also like my my life journey tells this but like I'm a fairly competent human being like I can figure things out I I can work my way through things I have enough intelligence that I can like get through a situation and like make things happen for myself and open doors and pursue opportunities and all that so as far as like the dependence on God like it wasn't necessarily something that was um prevalent that I needed to do all that like oh God, I can't make it through this. I need to depend on you. Let me like ask. Okay, then put Esther in the context of running for Congress. Yeah. So I went from like having a handle on my life to holy moly, what did I get into? Like there's not a single aspect of this experience that I, Esther Joy King, know how to handle. And so it's taken me from being able to figure out my life as a human to, I only can depend on God. And there's so many pieces of this experience that I, first of all, like, you know, that I don't know if either of you have ever experienced this, but like kind of the, the young person journey of like, I'm, I'm wandering in my career. I have all these disparate experiences that don't necessarily tie together. Like, what do I want to do with my life? Like, mm-hmm. can you relate to that? Yeah, yeah. I was in that, that experience prior to running for Congress, like just my career path is like, Oh, I did this. And then I did this. And then I did this. And then I did this. But when I jumped in to run for Congress and started the journey, I said, I see the plan. God has prepared me in each and every aspect of what I've done in the past and who I've become. It was contributing to me doing this experience with my life whether it's being the daughter of Christian missionaries, what do you do as a daughter of Christian missionaries? Well, you do public speaking. You go knock on people's doors and invite them to church. Guess what? You do a ton of fundraising. Yeah. What do I do as a political candidate? Well, I go knock on people's doors. I fundraise. I like, it's literally copy paste and like every life experience, being a lawyer, being in the army, like all of these life experiences that I've had have prepared me for this part of my journey. And jumping into it, whether it's the attacks or the fundraising or or just so many pieces of it, I am not capable of figuring it out as a person. I have to depend on supernatural source of strength. Mm. And so my personal experience through all this has been highly tied to my spiritual experience and seeing how God is pursuing me through this experience. So you asked me, what was the emotion of election night? So we had rented a couple hotel rooms, like to set up like a command center and for election night and bring like, as all the results were coming in. And then we had another couple rooms for um, like staff headquarters and all this stuff. So we all, when they called the elect, well, actually they didn't call my election for a few days, but that's a different part of the story. But when it, when we realized like, I'm not winning this. Yeah. We all kind of just came out and I, my parents were there and um, two of my brothers came to be with me and one of my best friends came. So we all just kind of ended up in the hotel hallway. This is probably like 2.30 in the morning. We're all sitting along the walls and I led a prayer and we're all, we're all crying and stuff. But in that prayer, like what I said was, God, if your entire purpose in this was to pursue my heart, it was all worth it. Mm. 
if that was all that this was about, yeah, every single moment of it was worth it. Wow. Because God drew me to him through the entire experience. Mm-hmm. Wow. Were you, were you, I guess at what point after that were you like, okay, I'm doing this again. I'm doing this again. Like I'm ready. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So it it was immediate. It was immediate. Yeah. I, the fight's not over. Like the, the, the emotion of it, the feeling of it and that like almost winning and then having it like the hope dashed. Um, I said, this isn't done. Mm-hmm. I'm finishing this fight. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty immediate. It, I didn't necessarily like jump in to start campaigning until January 1st. So I like November, December, I kind of laid real low. Totally honestly, I watched a lot of Netflix <laughs> those yeah. two months. Uh, but then Good for you. really jumped in to start campaigning again on January 1st, 2021. And you've already got, you've already got a strong foundation and network set up so i can imagine this second go has been more efficient oh yeah and so number one lesson i've learned like you you hear people say this i'm gonna use a name are you ready for this chad yeah warren buffett talks about this yeah (laughs) the power of compounding interest Mm -hmm. and that's totally relevant in this situation where i started round one was a david versus goliath and now this time i'm the front runner And so I have a ton of momentum. Like at this moment, I have 14 times the amount of cash on hand, money in the bank as all of my opponents added together. That's an incredible position to be be in. And it truly is the power of compound interest. All the people who supported me in round one are supporting me in round two. And I'm just building from there. Mm -hmm. I'm building the network. I'm asking people that supported me last time to introduce me to their connections and their friends. And then at the national level, because of how close I came in 2020, people are so excited to support me in 2022. So I have a lot more of, of name recognition and people believing in me at the national level that are joining, like everything we accomplished in 2020 was, it was all grassroots. It was volunteer driven. It was people, um, believing that we deserve better from our government, wanting a channel to make a difference and choosing to do that by volunteering for my campaign. That's a hundred percent what was the recipe for our success in 2020. And we still have all that. And then add on top of it, the people that are taking notice and have the capacity to, to open doors and to support in a big way and all that kind of stuff. And so really it's just been like the, the speed of momentum has really increased. It's been an, like, honestly, above all, I am humbled to be a part of it. And the last, over the last year, there has been an awakening. Mm -hmm. There really has. I mean, the, the, the mainstream media, they've lost their grips on, (laughs) on the people of America. I truly believe that. I mean, when you see when you see podcasts that are outranking, yeah, mainstream media sources, they've lost their grip. I mean, people over the last year have woke woken up, yeah. in 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 a good way, right? Well, so, I, I mean, I think what you shared there about the answering Chad's question, I, all the stuff you've told us about you is cool. A lot of it's impressive, but that how you handled that to me says the most about you because then it's not it's not Esther as a Republican or or Esther as a politician it's that Esther is a daughter of God and and that that was most important to you 
And the Republican just means you identify with this school of thought more so than, than this one. And so to me, that is what should stand out really above anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what stands out the most to me is that it was like, man, it's like fasting. You know, when you fast, it's like, man, all of that, whatever, whatever you were fasting from that, that you dealt with not having, it was worth it because you drew closer to God. And so in that situation, if that's what the, if that's what you had to endure to get to that next level with God, then it was worth it, and that's pretty powerful. Well, you know what, Blake? I'm glad you pointed that out because I didn't even think about it. The listeners don't know Esther. I already knew that. Yeah. Like, we we spent three days in the wilderness with Esther. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, good good on you for pointing that out Well, because I was just assuming, like, well, yeah, that's the reason we have Esther on the podcast to tell her story and to talk to us about these things is because – we know she's a, a daughter of Jesus Christ. We know she's a beautiful person, a strong person, mm-hmm. a good leader. We already know all that. Yeah. So, good point. To your point about three days in the wilderness, Sunday night, coming back from basic, the one question I kept asking myself was, why did I put myself through that misery? It was brutal, wasn't it? And, like, really reflecting on, like, who am I as a person that has led me to decide I'm going to put myself in extremely uncomfortable situations again and again and again? And what, like, what am I getting out of this? Why am I choosing to be this miserable, referring to the physical misery? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and like, just asking myself, why am I doing this to myself? And then realize kind of to like get myself out of that, that circular thinking about it. I was like, okay, well, what, what is my other option? My other option is like living in ignorant bliss and just being, living a comfortable lifestyle. And I was like, well, that sounds miserable in, in a more broad sense. So I'd rather be the type of person that chooses to do hard things and sticks with it rather than just floating through, skating through, getting by. Yeah. Um, and so more broadly, like that is legitimately what I'm doing in this bigger process is like, I'm just sticking with it and it's hard and totally vulnerably, like, especially right now, I've been doing this for almost three years. It's tiring. It is a lot to do every single day. And whether it's media interviews and, um, going to events, all, all of it, all of it. Um, just traveling, you're traveling, you're down, you just came from Alabama. Like that's hard enough. Yeah. Um, all the travel involved, just the, like the lifestyle of it is really tough. And why would I choose to do this? Well, there is a greater mission and the greater mission is like, who am I becoming as a person? Who am I becoming as a daughter of God? How am I growing in this opportunity and in this experience? Mm And I'm choosing myself, I'm choosing to put myself in these situations for the growth, for the contribution, for the bigger purposes and values and that I choose to live by. Yeah. And I just am going through these things because the bigger mission is at stake. Yeah. That's the only way to build that muscle memory is yeah. to choose to put yourself in those situations like you put yourself in at the basic course. Because you build that muscle memory and the decisions you made out there in the backcountry when it got hard, now those will be those will be more or less your default decisions in life when it matters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's awesome. Does anyone else need to take a break? 
Uh, yeah, we could we could take just a break. When, when I I'll take when, some water. When I, I yeah, when I come when we come back, I want to talk to Esther about the things that she's most passionate about, uh, changing or impacting. So, just give you a little preface there. All right, we're back on. Um, thank goodness for daylight. What is it? This is is this daylight savings? We just had it on Sunday night. Yeah, thank goodness for it because. It's 6.45 and it's still light outside. I wish it would stay this way. Would somebody introduce some legislation? <laughs> to, to leave Wait, it alone? before we jump into that, uh, you mentioned backcountry. I'll tell you a funny thought I had today. So I travel a lot. This trip, I accidentally forgot my deodorant. And I was like, well, I like driving here. I was like, oh, I can smell myself, but... I hope Chad and Blake just don't mind it because we'll just pretend like we're in backcountry. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. We we, uh, we are immune to body odor anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We quit using deodorant. I was like, deodorant. I'll just pretend like I'm in backcountry and it'll be fine. We probably couldn't smell you over ourselves, so. You know, Esther, I'm just trying to... Um, this is such a huge sacrifice that you're making and i understand that the 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 contribution i understand the service aspect but like like i said earlier there's got to be some things that you're most passionate about that when it does get overwhelming when it does when you do feel fa that fatigue and and it does get hard like, what are those things that you're most passionate about having an impact on that drive you forward in those times? Daylight savings time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be one on my, high on my list. Uh, wow. What motivates me? So I talked earlier a little bit about, like, in those moments where I'm so exhausted, if I can just narrow my focus to people and reactions that sustains me and that helps a lot. And I know that's not what your question is about because you're talking, you're asking more on the policy side. But the true answer is caring about people and that that ability to have a personal connection and let people know they matter is one of the most, that's where I get the most energy from mm. in this whole process. But I'm speaking of issues I'm passionate about to jump in to answer directly. So I grew up on the border. So I saw firsthand the impact on communities, but more importantly, the impact on the immigrants of what it is to cross illegally into the United States. And what's happening at our southern border is absolutely unconscionable. So that's an issue. Overhaul, first of all, securing our southern border, then overhauling our immigration system. That's something that really matters to me for personal reasons. Also, like on the immigrant side, my sister married a gentleman who, first of all, came to our country and was here illegally. So they met and fell in love while he was an illegal immigrant. And they decided to do it right. So he turned himself in, was deported. And then they went through almost a five-year process to have him come back to the United States. So I had a front row seat to their personal experience and just realized how hard it is. to, If you want to follow the rules and want to come to our country legally, that ain't easy. Yeah, And so the... The mission and like the the fabric of America is we're built on 
immigration and we're built on people coming together to become one right that's the very theme of the united states of america is come pursue the american dream and build a life for you and your family and contribute contribute yeah. yeah and so if it's if it's harder to get here legally than it is illegally something's messed up mm-hmm. and so i truly believe we need to tackle that issue and and build a system where we do welcome people to contribute through legal mechanisms okay um what about all this i have to ask you since you're passionate about that what about all the conspiracies that that is all so screwed up because because the the democratic party gets those votes did they is that screwed up on purpose so that illegal immigrant illegal people can come over and then cast a vote to have you heard those conspiracies like how did it get so screwed up was it on purpose or well i you can look at the data i mean the policies under the previous administration president trump we were we had illegal immigration quelled things were going much more smoothly fewer number like fewer people were coming across and just the one difference you can look at the numbers they changed on january 20th 2021 and the whole immigration southern border situation flipped on its head so was that on purpose though uh the policy yes the the policies actively changed if like if you look at watch interviews with immigrants coming across like they'll people will interview them and ask why well we heard biden you know yeah like um so yes there is a different attitude and a different approach from this administration and it is causing uh uptick in illegal immigration and I mean, I don't know if you guys know this. I was talking with a, a congresswoman who's been really supportive of me. She was telling me about some hearings they had last week uh, on the border. And she said, Esther, many people don't realize that human trafficking is the number one uh, income for cartels. Like it's been drugs for a long time, but now it's to the point where the human trafficking line of business that the cartels are operating is a more lucrative they're making 26 and a half million dollars every month by human trafficking illegal immigrants into the united states because mm. every single immigrant is paying four thousand dollars ten thousand dollars to come to the united states and they're making a ton of money so it they're recruiting people they're like marketing to other countries saying come to mexico and we'll get you into the united states of america and we're not we're not implementing the policies or support or funding that our border patrol needs those guys got such difficult job right they've now, got man. such difficult Good jobs gosh. and um they're like they're in what they're they're so difficult like everything from they're rescuing people that have been human trafficked to women that have been raped and used for um sale in in the whole on the whole journey and they're they're like so they're dealing with all these um people that literally just got human trafficked and imagine what those immigrants are going through and then imagine what the border patrol agents are going through trying to help and support them while also realizing the overburdening on our system like um one of my fellow candidates she's running in in a district in texas right along the border 
she's like, Esther, like there's not even enough groceries in the grocery store for our community anymore because so many illegals are coming and that there's such an influx of just people that wow. the people that live in those towns aren't able to really just live a normal life anymore because their whole systems are overburdened uh, because of the illegal immigration coming across the border. Dang. And it got so bad so just so quickly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dang it, man. I didn't even think about that. The other thing, and I talked to another woman who was a missionary in Ecuador. Like the 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 externalities of the situation are just unfathomable. But um, I believe it was Ecuador. So all these, a lot of the people coming up are men, and they usually leave their families behind. They they're coming for economic opportunity to earn money. Well, the the tragedy in some of the South American countries are now there's all these fatherless families and who know they haven't talked to their husbands and for months. Yeah. And so there's just women down in the South American and Central American countries who are trying to survive because they're the male of their family pursued economic opportunity by coming to the Southern border to try to get into America. And there's just, fatherless families across Central and South America that are trying to make it. What like I would imagine, single hundred, moms hundreds with, of thousands, right? I'm sure. Oh, probably millions. Man. Yeah. But all the externalities of, of these the situation that we don't even calculate or understand, yeah. or, like the awareness of it is missing for us. Yeah. Um, well, one thing that I'm really passionate about is taxation. <laughs> Should I pay my taxes? Um, one fun fact about me, when I went to law school, I... Hold on, Esther's mastered this I, Q&A. You got this? I, I'm really conflicted on uh, on whether or not I'm paying my taxes this year. What would Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. There's your answer. Gosh, dang it, man. Uh, one fun fact about me, while I was in law school... I said, you know, one degree is not enough. So in, in law school, the cliche is your first year of law school, they scare you to death. Your second year of law school, they work you to death. And your third year of law school, they bore you to death. So for me in my third year of law school, obviously I can't be bored to death. So I decided to get a second degree for my third year. So I have a master's in tax law. Are you serious? Totally oh serious. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> Well, is there an answer to the to the, the whole tax situation? Okay. Uh, that's like such a big question. Can you give me like narrow it is down? There, is there a way to lessen the the tax, the federal tax burden on people yes. responsibly? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I Fiscal responsibility at the government level is top priority. Like talk about issues I'm passionate about. That's one. We're, I mean, we just watched like just this last week, they passed a million and a half trillion spending bill. Just the, the overspending that we're seeing at the federal government level is so unnecessary. It's causing a lot of the inflation that we're going through. So can we be fiscally responsible? Can we live within our means at the federal level? Yes, we can. We truly need courageous politicians to get there. And so I hope to be one of them that will vote for 
lowering federal spending, that will vote for holding federal agencies accountable so that we have, like, we can help get rid of the bloat and lessen the unnecessary aspects of federal government to, to, to lessen the spending. And then ultimately that leads to if we can live within our means and we can give it back to citizens and we can reduce the tax, the taxation. Mm. So yes, we can. Okay. We can get to a point, a point where we lower the burden of taxation. You're giving me all kinds of hope here, man. I'm not going to do it by myself. I need your help. I need you to do your part. You well, too, Blake. The far, well, I, I I need I need a little hope. You're giving me some hope here. Um, that was one thing. To you talked at the beginning of how we met, and I don't know if you remember this, but one of the things that you said at the end of it was, "Wow, you have the gift of encouragement." Mm-hmm. And that's I know that about myself. I I knew it before you told me that, but highlighting that is it's one of my the things that I'm thankful about myself characteristics I like about myself is that I I am I hope when I interact with people that I give them a spark of hope and Mm -hmm. encouragement that that they can make a difference Mm -hmm. that they can't like if that's the impact I make in the political world so be it like to just inspire people like get involved if you can only do a small amount do it like it matters it makes a difference yeah yeah that's the truth and it's such a simple when when you lay it out the way you did you're so intelligent, but you also have a gift of being able to put things into terms where like, oh, okay, I can understand. Like, it's such a simple equation. Like, oh, yeah, if if we as a nation started balancing our checkbook and living within our means, then yes, well, yeah, then we could decrease the tax burden on the people mm-hmm. because we're living within our means. But good gosh, what do I do in the meantime when we're in the meantime when we're not living in our means? Well, I've got to manage. That's the tax man right there, son. <laughs> Look, the first day, the first tax bill that we ever got, because then the military just comes out of your check, right? right. And so when we started three hundred seven project, I almost quit the first tax <laughs> bill we got. I literally. I was in this office right here, had all kinds of, I was in a groove, man. I was getting stuff done, you know, just doing what I do. And this joker tells me about that tax bill. I went home. I just went home. I contemplated never coming back. (laughs) Well, see, the thing is, I keep Chad to where he's still as free as you can be in America because if it weren't, then he would have all all these kinds of warrants out on him for <laughs> tax evasion or I or stopped <laughs> I stopped buying license plates on my truck. I had quit buying license plates. I don't I don't he's liable to have a warrant on him now. I probably do. He had jury duty the other day and he just wrote him a letter and sent it in and didn't go. <laughs> he just wrote him a letter and said I'm not going to be able to make it. That the, the look if you want me to put a license plate on my truck that I own, send it to me. I'll put it on my truck just for you. But I'm not going down to the DMV and spending an entire day and paying you hundreds of dollars to buy a license plate that you want me to put on the vehicle that I own. I ain't doing it. And I tell you what, send me screws and a screwdriver too because I might not be able to find it. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. Is that 
Chad, is that living to your highest capacity as a human? Well, it's it's just it's you know it's just <laughs> me trying to. Um, it's my way of standing up for freedom, man. <laughs> I don't, I don't it is see. not free that you require me to put a <laughs> buy a license plate from you to put on my truck. But like the we know this right from from our history as America, our founding fathers. The price of freedom is high, and. We are blessed to be Americans. Part of the blessing is through the system that we live in. And like, if you think about why do we have license plates on our cars? Well, some of it is so that we're identifiable because we have traffic laws and officers need to be able to identify who's who and and how uh, if the law is broken, we need to be able to attach consequences to that. I understand that. And so the price of freedom is living within the system that creates that freedom. And so are you contributing at your highest level by rebelling and not putting a license plate on your car? Look, I'll start with this. Um, I, I don't know how to answer that question. I have to think about that. I'll start with this. I'll tell you the answers. No, the question is, do you want to contribute at your highest level? I, I'm going to tell you, at least fix the freaking DMV, man. Well, at least. I, when I go in the DMV, I get, automatically have, I'm depressed. Have you applied for a job at the DMV? Lord, no. Why don't you take that on? If you have a problem with the DMV, why don't you go help fix it? I've got my own job. The DMV don't tell have to tell me to fix three or seven project. You know what I do? I just do it online. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not willing to go down there and work, but I'm not going to complain about it. So I just go online. I have a mail to. All right, I'm with Blake on this. I don't think you deserve the right to complain <laughs> unless you're willing to pay the price to change it. <sighs> Good gosh, Esther! I can't get away with nothing with you around. Um. All right, give me one other thing you're you're really passionate about. So a lot of the, if we were to put a bow around some of the topics we've talked about and the themes, particularly some of your frustrations, I would pull a theme of government functionality. Is the system working well? It's pretty obvious the answer is no right now. Mm -hmm. I want to be a representative, a member of the team that helps lead towards a better functioning system. To me, that means, like we just talked about, living within our budget, living within our means. And you know what? This is a really unsexy topic. Like, what do you want to do? Just show up to work every day and do my best. Like, it doesn't really get likes or attention yeah. or that kind of thing. But can I be someone that helps the system function more effectively. There's a lot of reforms needed in Congress, whether it's like we, everything gets done right now through omnibus bills, which is like an everything in the kitchen sink. You just throw everything in. Well, it turns out that that creates a lot of bloat and a lot of irresponsible uh, spending and a lot of really- um, Inefficiencies. In, yeah, inefficiencies. That's a great, thank you for giving me that word. Inefficiencies. So maybe we reform how bills are passed. And like another thing right now under Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, people are proxy voting. So people don't even show up to work. 
There's a lot of Democrats who don't even go to Washington, D.C., and they just let a friend vote for them. For a lot of Republicans, too. I, I don't know on that side, but I do know on the Democrat side. I think Republicans show up a little more than, than Democrats do, because uh, particularly on this proxy voting thing, like proxy voting is something that Nancy Pelosi implemented and the Republicans are against it. So they're showing up just to prove a point even. You just have your buddy call in. Your you just call your buddy and tell him how to vote for you, though. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> that's something. I wish I could do that. <laughs> I know, right? That's something that needs to change on day one. And there, like, there's a lot of accountability that needs to come in the system. You talked earlier about leadership. A big piece of leadership is accountability for how you lead. We really desperately need that in Washington, D.C. right now. We need transparency into a lot of the stuff the Biden administration is doing. Like, what happened in Afghanistan, unconscionable. Do you, do you guys know my story about Afghanistan? Have you? It was sort of, I talked about it on Resurrect, Resurrected one time. So, okay, this is a, to a different rabbit trail. I'm, I'm turning this in a different direction. So I, I mentioned my family history, my connection to the country, yeah. working there. So everything that happened last August, I have a personal connection and just a life-changing story around. So my parents came back to the United States. They came from Afghanistan to be with me on election night. When they were here in the United States, during that time, uh, my mom was getting sick, so going through tests and stuff, and ended up being diagnosed with cancer. When she got diagnosed, so they were still running their school in Afghanistan from over here, and they had gone remote because of COVID, so they were doing their whole school on online at that time. So my mom was teaching all her classes, like, because Afghanistan is nine and a half hours different than us, so my mom was, like, waking up in the middle of the night teaching all her classes, in the middle of the night and when my mom got sick I took over her classes for her so I started or not all of them but a few of them me my dad and my aunt did so it took three of us to be one one mom but the classes I was teaching so I was waking up late at night like in the middle of the night to teach a high school English class in Kabul Afghanistan uh, and this is like about this time 2000 and last year so about this time last year I was doing this and Running for Congress is hard. Teaching a class of Afghan high school kids, Julius Caesar, nothing <laughs> compares to that. That's real hard. Uh, but really like developed a close relationship with some of the high school students, particularly the girls. And so taught them all through the end of the year. Um, fast forward to June, July. You can kind of see what's going on. It was easy from the United States if you were paying attention to see something good's coming. Something not good is happening. Yeah. Like something bad is coming. And so just in an effort to help, I was trying to like realizing, especially these high school girls, whatever happens, it's not going to be good for them under the Taliban. I was trying to bring them um, to get student visas so that they could come to boarding school in the United States. So I was already trying to help apply for and go through that process, raise some money to help them f afford boarding school, that kind of thing. So... I went to bed on August 14th. I Skyped with one of the young girls that night and said, like, you're not on your own. I'm with you in this. I'm going to do whatever I can to help. So I went to bed that night, August 14th. So that was the night that the Taliban was on the outskirts of Kabul. 
thinking I had two to three days to just get them out of the country, like buy them a plane ticket, just get them to Pakistan, India, somewhere outside Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And then I'll figure out the visas and get them to boarding school later on. But we just need to get them out. I woke up the next morning, the Taliban had overrun the city of Kabul. So I jumped into just action mode. Being a member of the military is helpful. I called everybody I knew. Do you know anyone at the Kabul airport? Do you know anyone? Do you know anyone? Do you know anyone? Actually, I was I was with a friend of mine who's also running for Congress, who's a former Navy SEAL. And he had buddies that were going over there just to do like totally not um, endorsed or anything by the government. They were just going to go do special operations and help rescue people. So he had a group of buddies that were going over and put me in contact with them and Worked my military networks, got in touch with some soldiers on the ground at the airport and some Marines. And then running for Congress was also helpful. I called everybody I knew in Congress, like, can you help me? Can you help me? Like, I need contacts at the State Department. I just, I need help to get people out. So I focused in the effort, I focused on the high school students from my parents' school. And I kind of, the role I played, like I, it was the wild, wild west. Like just that, that two and a half weeks, I didn't sleep for that whole time and um, I basically became a project manager to help rescue people and everything from like, we got to fill out a paperwork. Like we need, they need to apply th for this form for, from the state department. Like somebody do that. I, and I had people all over the United States, people from resurrected were supporting, like just people willing to do paperwork at any hour of the night, people willing to like, it takes so many spreadsheets to save lives. Like, okay, I can get these people on this plane manifest, but they won't accept it in this format. Like I need somebody to reformat this spreadsheet mm, I get that. like so that I can submit it to, so that they can get on this plane and get out of the country. But really a lot of it happened over WhatsApp. So I would be in contact with the Afghans and I helped a lot of Americans too, but um, just communicating to them like, Hey, I heard this, like the, the crowds at the airport are really low right now. Um, they, so go right now. Now's a good time to go, like get to the airport immediately. And then I, on the, when, once they got to the airport, I would like tell someone on the inside, like, Hey, I have a group of like three Afghans that are at this gate. Can anyone go get them? And someone would be like, well, I can, I'm off my shift in two hours so I can go get them in two hours. Like tell them not to move. I'll come get them in two hours. And so I'd put them in a WhatsApp group together and they'd share their, the Afghans would share their location. And then whenever the soldiers could go get them, they'd like connect and bring them into, and then I'd have filled out all their paperwork and everything. Um, so we were able to, I was able to help get 51 people out of Afghanistan during the withdrawal. Wow. <laughs> Good gosh, Esther. Is there anything that you can't do? <laughs> <laughs> downhills. Unbelievable. <laughs> I can't <man>. do downhills. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Esther. I have really enjoyed this conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of yeah. ground. And I don't know, I, this is obviously not your typical interview because this is the 307 podcast and we talk about whatever's on our mind. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it's just, uh, I'm thankful to have someone like you in my life, man. Just because, I don't know, it's comforting. Because you're just, you're, you're such a powerful person and I cannot wait to see where you go and real that that's the whole oh, yeah. thing that like, 
Oh, she's can, as real as it gets. People can <laughs> blow that smoke all the time, and it's like, oh, well, okay. I have seen Esther <laughs> in action. Yep. And she's as real as it gets, son. Yep. When crap hits the fan, she's going to she's gonna shine, yep. boy. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Um, That's it's an honor to have you say that about where, me. Where Thanks. can where can people connect with you, Esther, or uh, support you, or what, whatever? I mean, what do you need for the listeners that yeah. that love you as much as as we do? Well, anyone that wants a political experience to to have an on the ground campaign experience, you are welcome anytime in Western Illinois. So we're really going to get ramped up uh mid-summer about mid-july is a good time all the way to november 8th 2022 so if anyone wants to come volunteer and learn firsthand get your hands dirty in politics you are more than welcome to come volunteer for esther for congress so best way to get in touch is uh estherforcongress.com you can sign up for the email list Uh, on social media i'm esther for congress across all the social media platforms and you can email me at esther at estherforcongress.com. That's a really easy way to get in touch. Um, but I would I would want to like communicate the message to everyone listening. Like you can make a difference. If you care about what's happening in our country, particularly in politics, get involved. Every single person has the capacity to make a difference. Every vote matters. If you volunteer for a campaign wherever you're at in the United States, you can help people, good people, get into office. And every every hour volunteered, every every meeting attended, every connection made will build on itself and pay off. And ultimately what it all leads to is the purpose of fighting for our country. Mm. I want to be governor. Of Georgia? Yeah. I never realized how important governors were. They are. They're important. They got a lot. We of saw power. that during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. They got a lot of power to 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 impact the lives of the people in their state. One day, one I day, think, Blake will let me be governor. I think you should start out as sheriff. <laughs> Get your license plate first. He'd look good as sheriff. If look, people, if y'all elect me as governor. You will no longer oh, have to buy license plates ever again. <laughs> here we go. I, I want to see a sheriff's uniform with short shorts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's estherforcongress.com and on social media, Esther for Congress. I love that. I'll attach that. I'll attach those links in the show notes of this episode. Um, well, Esther, I love you so much. And we're going to be praying for your success. And uh, just for your wisdom and, like I say, I can't wait to watch. Thanks. It's been, it'd be an honor to have you with me on the journey because it's, you're, I was it's just, been, I was just wondering if you'd let me speak at one of your rallies. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I do want to do? I do want to have like a volunteer, like there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of people running for different offices, but um, our primaries in June and then after that, like it's go time right so um we're planning like a volunteer um training event where we get all the volunteers across the state like in a room if you want to come like inspire them encourage them put some fire into them i can't pay you but you can wear your short shorts it's my sir it would be like a it's 
That's how I can serve. You know what you would be like at one of those. I won't two. say anything political. I will just be insp- I will just be the ultra runner Navy SEAL Chad. You would be like the dogs you see at the park where they've got those terrible muzzles on them where they're like they can be at the park but they can't they can't uh, function with everybody. No, else. no, it would be fun because I I know if I get out of line up there, Esther's going to shut me down. Yeah, she would. She's going to pull the plug out of the mic and yep. come pull and come drag me off the stage, kick you in the knee, <laughs> force me to eat a Cliff Bar. <laughs> All right, guys, you guys go find Esther and follow her and uh, thank her for um, her awesome life of service to not only our country but humanity. It's uh it's been a pleasure Esther. I hope to see you soon. Enough said. <laughs>